All right, so turn your copy of scriptures to the little book of Jude. I could say Jude chapter 1, but it's only one chapter towards the back of your Bible. I'll be reading uh, verses 5 through 7 tonight. Um, I'll tell you a little story on myself. Uh, when, I was, um, when I was in high school, I was a pretty good student uh, towards the top of my class, and then um, I, uh, I, I, in part, I want to blame it on the influence of a friend, but it was, I'll own it. It was, it was my own uh, silliness, but I, I came to believe that I was smarter than most of my teachers and smarter, smart enough to basically do whatever I wanted and still be able to get by and still make good grades and not have any real consequences. And so uh, maybe, you know, at the high school level, I was able to do that some. I, I did come down in my class, but I was still, you know, high enough where it's like, you know, this doesn't really matter. I know I could do better if I want to do better. Um, so basically, it was just living a life of doing, you know, largely whatever I wanted within, within reason, within my reason, right? And, um, and not expecting any real consequences. Well, then I um, uh, was a freshman at, at UNC Chapel Hill, and uh, talk about a wake-up call. I, was, um, I quickly realized that, uh, you know, maybe I had thought of myself as a, a big fish in a small pond, and now I was a little, little guppy in a big sea, and, um, and I quickly learned that I could not do whatever I wanted and still get good grades. I was very happy to, I was relieved to get a D plus in biology uh, freshman year and not have to retake that over again. D plus, I got twin D pluses. I got a D plus in biology and biology lab. So um, don't ask me about biology. But um, anyway, uh, it was as I as I, th- I think about that, I was um, well. You know, I might have learned a little bit from that D plus, but then second semester, I didn't learn all that much. My grades got a little bit better, but then. Uh, after my freshman year that summer, I got a uh, letter in the mail from my scholarship, and I had somehow overlooked this clause of the scholarship, but it, it said I had to maintain a certain GPA in order to keep the scholarship. And so um, I did the math, and I effectively needed, I had to make Dean's List the next semester in order to keep that scholarship. And um, I was in disbelief over that. I called this, this, you know, whoever managed the scholarship, and just to make sure that that letter was correct. I was like, "Are you really? I have to keep. I have to make dean's list." And I was like, "Yep," <laughs> but we believe you can do it. So, um, by God's grace, I did. Made dean's list um, sophomore year, freshman year. Made it second semester sophomore year as well. Um, and I'd like to say that I learned, um, but you know, junior year moved off campus, had a little more fun. It's just sort of a, you know. Anyway, I'm still in process, still learning, but, um, but as I think about that, it's, it's good to have consequences when you have stinking thinking. It's good to be, you know, if you, I was living this lie that I could do whatever I wanted and still, you know, overcome that, you know, that I was smart enough to overcome that, um, but God being the good father that he is, he let me experience consequences. He let me experience the heat. That I might change my ways. He let me experience reality that I might change my ways, and, and I did. And, and so as, you know, as I think about with my own daughter, uh, for the rest of us who are, who are parents, we want to give, it's good that we give our kids consequences, right? 
that we not let them run off in their foolishness and their selfishness. They need to understand that there's consequences for sin. And also what a father does is not only gives you good consequences, not only gives you consequences when you sin, but also will point to that example and say, you see how they did this and that and they, they experienced this consequence as a result? Don't do that. And that's what, that's what Jude is doing here. That's what the Father is, is doing here, speaking to us in the Scriptures. As we're going to uh, read of, of three examples of God's judgment on people in the past as a warning to us, as a warning from the Father saying, don't go that route. So let me read from Jude, um, the only chapter, verses 5 through 7. It's up on the screen here behind me if, if you don't have it in front of you. Jude writes, he says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Let's pray. Father, may we be wise to heed the warning. God, we may not think of our sin as being that serious, but when we read passages like this, you mean for us to see it. You mean for us to see it on the cross, and how much it cost Jesus. You mean for us to see your great mercy, your, your offer of rescue on the cross. Lord, may we see it today. May we see King Jesus. May we see him pleading with us to turn from our wicked ways and to turn to him who is our only hope and our only salvation. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So to give us a, a quick recap of last week, not to re-preach the sermon, but to give us a quick recap, set the stage, set the context, Remember, Jude had given us this command to contend for the faith, to contend for the faith, the faith meaning uh, the body of truth, the, the apostles' doctrine, that which we you know, believe, that which Jesus taught to the apostles. It's a once-for-all faith. Um, that which was once-for-all delivered to the apostles in the early church was devoted uh, to, the, to the apostles' teaching. There was not a multiplicity of, of ideas about what it meant to follow Christ early on as one of my... Professors at UNC likes to say, but this was a once-for-all faith, and we are to contend for that faith, contend for the truth. And why does he tell them, why is he telling us to contend for the faith? Because false teachers have crept in, they've snuck in unnoticed, and these false teachers are unknown, uh, one, by their, their, by their ungodly character, by their immorality, and known, two, by their teaching. It says that they were, what were they teaching? It says that they were perverting the grace of our God. They're perverting the grace of our God into sensuality and denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Uh, in other words, the way I would describe it is they were saying, you do you. Do you. you do whatever feels good. God's going to forgive you. It does sound familiar, does it not? You do, you do whatever you want. God's going to forgive you. And in so doing, they were denying the Lord. They were denying uh, Jesus right to, to, to command us, denying his lordship. And so um, that is 
what we are to do or to continue the faith for the faith. That is wise because of this, this ungodly teaching. And now I believe what he's doing is he's telling us how we are to contend for the faith. And he tells us how by, by first of all, telling us to remember something. He says, I want to remind you. And all three things that he reminds us of here are examples of judgment, the judgment that God has brought in the past. And, and, and with each of these, there is a lie that he is, that he is seeking to dispel. And I'd say in, in, in general, the lie that he's seeking to dispel is that there are no consequences for sin. But the truth is, God is a good God, and a good God punishes evil. God punishes rebellion. So the first example, the first reminder, is that of unbelieving Israel. Now, he, he, he says, you know, you once fully knew this. Uh, most, of, most of you, I would, I would hope, you, you fully know this story, but let me, let me remind us. The story that he's um, referring to here, it's just one verse. I'll read it again. He says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, Israel had been blessed to, to taste and see. They had been miraculously delivered from Egypt. God had, had brought the ten plagues on, on, on Egypt and uh, parted the Red Sea, miraculously delivering them. He had sustained them with, with manna, bread you know, coming from heaven, with, with quail, uh, with, with water from the rock. Uh, they had experienced God's working in their lives and their community. However, though God had delivered them out of Egypt, they did not trust him to deliver them into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a, a land that God said was good, um, where his presence would dwell among them. And so great was their unbelief, unbelief that God could deliver this in, into this, that God could deliver them into the promised land, unbelief that God was, was good enough to give them that that they wanted to return to slavery. They had been skeptical, hesitant about it all, and so they, they uh, nominated some, these 12 spies to go check it out, and the 12 spies had returned, and, and 10 of them, you know, well, they all said it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a good land. Uh, but 10 of them said there's, there's giants there that we just can't overcome. It would be better for us to just go back to slavery, to go back to Egypt. And only two of them, you know, Joshua and Caleb, were faithful and said that God can overcome the giants. Yes, we are smaller than them. Yes, we are outmatched, but not with the Lord. And, but uh, the people fell for the false teaching, if you will, of the spies. And what did God do? He judged them. He destroyed them. He brought an immediate plague on those ten spies and destroyed them. And then he condemned the rest of Israel to wander in the desert for 38 years. So that even when they wanted, they changed their mind and, and wanted to go into the promised land, his, his blessing was no longer up upon them. He said, I, I won't be with you. And they were destroyed as they tried to go into the land without God. So why, why remind us of this? Well, first of, the, first of all, um, in each of these, generally speaking, there's a, a declaration of the ultimate end of judgment that awaits false teachers. He wants to assure us, these false teachers will be judged. Okay, They're not going to be allowed to persist in evil forever. God will judge them. Don't you worry about that. But also, he is giving a warning to us who would be tempted to follow their message. 
He is warning us who would be tempted to follow their message or to tolerate it in our midst, just as uh, the nation of Israel did with the report from the ten spies. But specifically in this, here in this example, uh, I believe he's, he's, he's reminding them of this to, to proclaim to them that the false teachers will be destroyed for abandoning Jesus, even though they may have once been regarded as believers. Even though they may have once been regarded as believers, they will be destroyed if they abandon Jesus. Now we know that one of the fruits of a true believer is that we endure to the end. Jesus says in Matthew that those who endure to the end will be saved. Those who continue to believe Jesus and cling to Jesus and put all their hope in Jesus will be saved. But as, uh, as 1 John 3 says, they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that it might become clear that they all are not of us. Some will go out from us and it will become clear that they were never really of us. Sadly. And he is warning us likewise that we too will be condemned if we abandon Christ's lordship and go off into sensuality, pursuing whatever feels good. And he is dispelling the lie. This is a lie that you can accept Christ as Savior while refusing him as Lord. It is a lie that you can accept Christ as your Savior or refusing him or denying him as your Lord. The truth is, the truth is, is that Christ saves to the uttermost those who would embrace him as Lord. Christ saves to the uttermost those who would embrace him as Lord. To explain that, he, God wanted to deliver them to the promised land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. But... Uh, they, they refused. They, 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 didn't, they wouldn't allow, they, they wouldn't accept God's every command over their life and let Him deliver them into that good land. Let me apply this to our situation here. Some of you, some of us, are struggling with temptations to sensuality of all kinds. You have experienced His goodness in the past, but Christ not only wants to save you from your past, he also wants to save you from your present, and He wants to give you a glorious future. And I'm not talking about just the future that is to come, the kingdom that is to come. He wants to give you a glorious future in these days. Hide not your struggles from Him. Hide not your struggles from Him, but fall upon His countless mercies. I know the temptations are strong. I've been there. Uh, you, you may feel like you cannot say no, but cry out to Jesus and fully embrace Him as Lord. Fall upon His mercies and He can save you to the uttermost. It does not matter what you are struggling with. He says, it does not matter even the strength of your faith, but what matters is the strength of the one who you put your faith in. You may feel like you are not strong enough to overcome it. You're not. That's why you need Jesus. And Jesus... He says a smoldering wick he, he does not put out. Any who come to him, any who come to him, he will save. And he will save you to the uttermost. He will transform you. He will redeem you. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you. Take my lordship upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And what's his promise? You'll find rest for your souls. Stop struggling on your own. Call upon Jesus. Call upon his body. God, God works through ordained means, and his ordained means for your deliverance is the church. Stop fighting on your own. Fight openly. Come to us. Come to us who have, who have, who have struggled and known victory, and let us struggle with you and experience victory and rejoice with you together. Reject not his means. Reject not his lordship. He saves to the uttermost all who would embrace him as Lord. The second reminder that he, that he gives to us is that of transgressing angels. Now, um, John MacArthur, uh, I think, sums this up well and tells us three examples of what he could be talking about. Again, just one verse, so I'll read it. Uh, verse 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What's he talking about here? Three options, um, according to MacArthur. One is he's referring to an episode that this audience was not familiar with. Well, that doesn't seem likely because he says, I wanted to remind you of something you once fully knew. Okay. Second option, and probably what I would have thought before I dug into this more, is that he's referring to fallen angels from Satan's rebellion. We know from, uh, from Revelation that as Revelation you know, pulls back the curtain of heaven and lets us see heavenly things that are going on, that, that Satan had led a rebellion uh, with a third of the angels um, against God, and God had, had cast them down. Um, but it says here that they have been put in eternal chains, in, e- in eternal bonds, and that doesn't really seem to apply to Satan, you know, and, and to the demons, because it says in 1 Peter 5 that uh, Satan is prowling around now like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we see in the Gospels, we see people uh, being possessed by demons and, and oppressed by demons. And so um, the third option would be to, to quote MacArthur, an extraordinarily heinous infraction by some of the fallen angels. Um, so apparently, the common interpretation Um, of Genesis chapter 6. Well, let's read Genesis chapter 6. This is what he's referring to. It says, When man man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And so basically, some of the fallen angels committing acts of such perversity that God condemned them to change until the judgment day. Um, I think you can, you know, I know... I'll let parents be parents. You can infer what's going on here. But, uh, but apparently, for 200 years before Christ and 200 years afterward, the only in, um, interpretation of Genesis 6 was, was this, that, that some of the fallen angels had, had found the daughters of men, had found human women to be attractive, and they had um, made these hybrid beast children called the Nephilim. 
And, um, and so uh, to, give, to give credit to that interpretation, that story is, is detailed more in the book of Enoch, which is a, an extra-canonical book, meaning it's not um, a book of Scripture, uh, but it is a book regarded as history, regarded as reliable for truth. And Jude quotes from Enoch later on uh, in, this, in this book. And Enoch mentions a fallen angel being covered with rugged and sharp rocks that he might not see light. He, he mentions um, a number of the angels uh, be, being, being imprisoned in the underworld. And so it seems that that's what he's talking about here. But regardless, what does the text say? The text says, that they did not stay within their position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling. They transgressed the proper boundaries that had been set for them by their Creator. They stepped over their established limits, and they, they did what God had forbidden. And what's interesting here is that these, these angels were pursuing freedom, but they'd found chains. They were pursuing freedom, going after being able to do whatever they wanted. And they found chains. This is our culture's idea of freedom today, is being able to do whatever you want. You hear um, in, the, in the abortion debate, people talk about, they say a woman should be able to do whatever she wants to do with her own body, that she has bodily autonomy. The ability to do whatever she wants with her own body. Well, what about the body of the person inside of her? That, you know, sexually speaking, that we should be able to define our own identities. And it's not just sexually speaking. I, I saw an article um, the other day where this, um, I believe it was a British man, had had something like 12 surgeries so that he could become Korean. Whatever that means, right? Um, so just wanting to define your own identity and, and, and rejecting the creator's boundaries. And we in our culture just tend to idolize the rebel, do we not? We, we, we love movies like Ocean's 11, 12, 13, 18, whatever number they're at now, um, that, you know, we, that thief who gets away with it, right? That's, we, we idolize that, that figure, the one who's able to do whatever he wants and gets, gets away with it. But that is not the Bible's idea of freedom. The Bible's idea of freedom is being free to serve Christ, being free to live according to our design, according to the Creator's design. Romans 6 says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? We have been set free from sin so that we might make a genuine free choice for Christ and his lordship. And I don't even think that this was you know, our current cultural idea of freedom, being able to do whatever you want, I don't think that was the, the founders, as we're you know, celebrating Independence Day today, I don't think that was the founders' idea of freedom either. The founders' idea of freedom was being free to worship Christ according to your conscience. As many of them were, were Puritans um, fleeing, uh, Puritans and nonconformists fleeing the Church of England and the, and the persecution there, and wanting to be able to worship Christ freely according to their conscience and respect others who were doing the same. That's true freedom. True freedom, and that is a freedom that we can and, and should celebrate today. First by giving thanks, and then by enjoying it. And so the lie that we must contend against, the lie that I think he's contending against here, and a lie that we should contend against in our own hearts and in our community, 
is that freedom is being able to do whatever you want. It's a lie. It only gets you chains, gets you slavery. The truth is, is that freedom is living according to God's good design. Freedom is living according to God's good design. I, um, I just remember as a, as a young man um, struggling with various temptations and, and just recognizing the goodness of marriage. You know, understanding that, um, that intimacy is a good gift from God, but he gives you boundaries to enjoy it with him. Those boundaries of marriage. If you can even picture a fence in this big open field, you know, you might see that fence as restrictive. But if you but if as I let my daughter play in this big yard with this fenced in, that's freedom. She can run around wherever she wants within those boundaries and have a good time. But our culture hates all fences and it drunkenly runs after this false notion of freedom, but it's only a deep dive into slavery and judgment. So why remind us of this story? For one, he's assuring us that these false teachers who arrogantly do whatever they want and proclaim that you can do the same, they will be judged. They will be bound and they will be judged. Regardless, David Guzik says, regardless of their past spiritual status, their past spiritual experience. I mean, these angels stood in the presence of God and yet um, arrogantly doing whatever they want, they are being judged. And so warning us likewise that regardless of our past spiritual experiences, that if you follow their message arrogantly doing whatever you want, that you will know slavery and judgment. Third example, which he says is similar to the second one, because he says, just as, he says in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Sodom was full-on embracing sensuality. And I would define sensuality, broadly speaking again, as just pursuing what feels good. And as you see that um, in Ezekiel 16, if you can give us that up on the screen, just an illustration of, of Sodom's pursuit of, of all manner of sensuality. It says, Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness, while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. She was proud and committed detestable sins. So I wiped her out, as you have seen. And the height of their expression of sensuality was their sexual immorality and their pursuit of unnatural desire, homosexuality. You know the story. Um, I'll remind you if you don't, um, but in Genesis 19, God goes to Abraham and he says that I'm about to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, because the cries of their wickedness have been coming up to me day and night. And Abraham pleads, he intercedes with the Lord, he said, and he, he, he gives all these numbers, if there's 50 righteous people there, will you not destroy it? And he said, okay, okay, if there's 50 righteous, then I won't destroy it. What about if there's 40? What about if there's 30? And he gets down to 10, and God agrees. He said, if there's 10 righteous people there, I won't destroy it. And so these, um, God's angels go down to the city of Sodom and are preparing to destroy it, and, and they meet Lot at the city gate, 
And uh, they said they're going to sleep out in the town square. And Lot says, oh, no, that wouldn't be a good idea. And so he invites them in uh, to stay with them. And um, wild story, all the men of the city, it said, were beating down Lot's door, wanting to cohabitate with the two angels that, that Lot was hosting in his home. And um, you can read the story. Lot has a crazy solution, which isn't a good idea. And eventually, you know, so great is their, their lust and their pursuit of it that um, the angels blind the men, keep them from coming in. And then they, they lead Lot and his family out of the city. And God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah in an instant. In both cases, when he's saying sexual immorality, pursuing unnatural desire, this is, again, a transgression of God's boundaries, of the order that the Creator has, has established. The word for sexual morality is an, an all-encompassing word. God defines um, marriage as between one man and one woman, heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong marriage, covenant before God, and anything outside of that is sexual morality. Anything outside of God's design, of those established boundaries, is sin. And we see here that it, that it merits judgment. I do want to clarify one thing. Um, notice that it says that they indulged in sexual morality and they pursued unnatural desire. It is one thing to feel temptations and to struggle against them. It's entirely another thing to embrace them and to, to run after them. The Bible never says that it is wrong to feel a desire. It is wrong to act on it. It is wrong to embrace it. It is wrong to give up the struggle against it and to pursue it, and to identify it with it, and to, to, to go after it headlong. Another observation I want us to notice is that this was an entire community, a region. Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding cities were destroyed. This entire community was going after these sins. And so there's a couple lies that we need to guard against. One lie is that the good life is found in walking the way of the culture. The good life, that which the life that's worth living, is found in walking the way of the culture. And you need to be aware that because you are being fed this notion of what the good life is all the time. Every commercial is pitching to you, this is the good life. There's these constant messages, this is the good life. This is what we should go after. But the truth is that the good life is found in giving all to follow Jesus. The good life is found in giving everything to follow Jesus. Um, recently read the story of, of this man, Sylvester Kirchmary. Uh, he was imprisoned under the former Soviet Union, 13 years imprisoned by the Soviet Union for his faith. And what gave him strength to endure that was the firm conviction, he says, that there could not be anything more beautiful than to lay down my life for God. Could not be anything more beautiful than to lay down my life for God. And it's increasingly true that as we counter what the culture is pushing, we're going to face persecution, social pressure, cancel culture. And we've got to decide, is a good life in going the way of the culture or is a good life 
in following Jesus and giving up everything to follow Jesus. The other lie that you need to be aware of is the lie that you can walk the way of the world and follow Jesus too. The truth is, and this is directly from James 4.4, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. When you are friendly towards the direction of the world, you make yourself an enemy with God. You cannot love God and the world that hates Him. You cannot love God and the world that hates Him. It's from 1 John 2.15 up on your screen. The scripture says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. I think that's very helpful the way he details that. The desires of the flesh. Pursuing that which feels good. That's the way of the world. That's what the world is saying you can do. That's what you should do. You should affirm your, your true inner self. And you should go after whatever you desire. 